0: All right, everyone. Welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by my contagious co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. how do you like that oh, alliteration, Mark?
1: Uh, <laughs> that is that is the perfect <laughs> adjective. I love it, Michael. Uh, I am fired up today. And, you know, I wrote something four years ago called The Virus is Spreading, long before COVID, uh, and took a lot of blowback. People Like, viruses are bad. Why are you saying that? I'm like, no. Something, when it goes viral uh, you know, when your enthusiasm is infectious and contagious, that's actually a good thing. So I actually, I, I do the reveal. I am wearing, I am wearing the bull market socks. The Bitcoin bull is back, baby. And right. I'm not going to call it absolutely. But if we surpass 219 on this kind of third rally, we've made three successive higher lows off the 175 wick and um i'm i'm starting to feel like spring is spring is coming so i was early euphemism for wrong on winter um but uh maybe maybe i'll be early and uh you know, right-ish on, on spring.
0: I've been listening to you pretty consistently. I will say, I think you've been more right than almost anyone else that I've been listening to just in terms of timing here. Walk me through, for those of us who aren't uh, familiar with the dark arts of uh, TA, why why, uh, yeah. why why is that pattern? Why does that tell you that we might have reached a bottom?
1: Yeah. So when you have, uh, on the positive side, when you have higher lows and higher highs, and because Markets chop, right? Markets don't go straight up. They don't go straight down. They they chop because human beings react greed and fear. And there are two types of markets. Winter and, and summer are uh, distribution markets mm. when people are selling, distributing, and accumulation markets when people are, are buying. And signs of accumulation are when you get a low and then it starts to go up and then people get afraid and they start selling and it push back down but then there's more buying pressure so it doesn't go as low so you make a a higher low and then you go up again and then you start to come down and then you make another higher low that pattern of higher lows is the formation of you've heard it called a you know a bottom mm. a rounding bottom and if you you know again people say oh you, well, you're drawing lines on charts doesn't do anything like no, it, it doesn't predict things it doesn't cause things but it lets us see patterns of behavior and that's why you know a month ago or five weeks ago I, I tweeted out that thing about look the longer we stay on this flat you know what's called a descending wedge pattern where you're bouncing up and you're bouncing lower each time the longer we stayed in that pattern around thirty thousand, the more risk there was of that cathartic puke and i said 15 and we made to 17.5 So, uh, again, it's not about prediction precisely. It's about directionality and pattern recognition and, and, it's it's just because human beings yeah. are predictable we do things in a predictable way
0: let me make two observations here um, I when maybe this is just kind of me looking at a chart but uh, one one thing that has kind of surprised me a little bit is just how resilient um, actually Bitcoin has been in the face of pretty horrendous CPI print that we got yesterday um, yeah. it kind of wicked down right but I think that was just the result of uh, and it's basically recovered everything since that um, you know yep. since that big move um, on you know, on the on the other hand, uh I, I think the the one thing that I've personally still been waiting for is just minor capitulation in general. You're starting to see that. I think Core Scientific announced that they were gonna sell seventy five hundred Bitcoin or something like that. So yeah. I've got these kind of two I, I, I would agree with you that it's not financial advice. I have I have no expertise here, but it does kind of seem like we are certainly closer to the bottom than you know, than the top or whatever. But um yeah. but I'm still waiting it still seems like they're you know, how do you kind of measure that? Is there one one foot to drop still from the miners, or, or or do you view it as very bullish that actually Bitcoin didn't really move no, in the no. face of the I, inflation I, print?
1: I think that is bullish, Michael, and it's a good point. And the the key thing I sent a series of tweets yesterday about this um, on the traditional market and then relative to to the Bitcoin market. You know, the traditional market not done; it it's got a long way to go. And the problem is too much leverage, right? There's still a mass amount of leverage. We corrected the amount of leverage that was higher than 18, which is orders of magnitude higher than 2008. There's so much margin debt in stocks that that needs to correct. And as it corrects, you know the, the problem for stocks is stocks are still still 54% overvalued relative to fair value. Mm. They've only been this expensive 7% of the time. In all of history, 140 years of history, only 7% of the time have U.S. equities been more expensive than right now. That includes the drop this year. On the flip side, Bitcoin has only been cheaper than its long-term history on 2% of the time two and a half percent of the time. Hmm. Oh, you, you have my charts. I Look do.
0: I do indeed. That's kind of fun.
1: <laughs> they're not my charts. They are, they are advisor perspectives charts. You know, Doug Short started it and, and Jillian, I can't remember her last name, uh, keeps it going. And they're fantastic. And I love this one. Yeah. Right? The red line, stocks go up. Over the long term, stocks go up. Why? Inflation, right? Our currency gets less good. So the value of assets goes up. Earnings, right? Companies actually earn money and growth, right? There is economic growth. So those three things make that red line go up about 6% compounded in real terms a year. And the problem is stock prices reflect greed and fear. And the greed is when we're above the red line and the fear is when we're below the red line. And, and you can be above or below for a long time but we've been above for a very long time. And to get back to fair value requires 54% drop from here. It's crazy.
0: Yeah. I uh, For those of you who are just listening to us on, on the audio here, what we've got is we're looking at the real S&P composite uh, from 1871 till the present day. And we've got uh, the price to earnings ratio mapped out below. And we've got a trend line superimposed over over both those things. So. You know, on the S and P, uh, going back to 1870, which is just amazing uh, as a history nerd and a data nerd, this is this is pretty awesome. We we're 118 yeah. percent above the regression line. Um, and on the price to earnings side of things, so that's on the S and P on the on the price to earnings, we're thirty eight percent above the regression line. Um, and as, as you as you said, I think in your tweet, right, it, it, price to earnings, it's, it's only been this expensive like seven percent of the time in history. So I'm, I'm I'm with you on that. I think there's still it feels like there's still a leg to go lower in stocks. Um, and again, yeah, this is uh,
1: this is the one I, I, I love it. And and the thing about this is this is not P E like today. Yeah, this is called P E ten. This is 10 years of average earnings, which smooths the peaks and the troughs. And people are saying, you know, the PE should be higher because companies make more in a low interest rate environment. Yeah, that's a specious argument because low interest rates are a sign of economic weakness, not strength. And so your future earnings growth is probably lower. Mm. But if you take a 10 year cycle, you get highs, you get lows, you get high interest rates, you get low interest rates. And so this is a really good indicator. And. Yeah, we're not in Stupidville in valuations anymore, but we're still in Sillytown. So <laughs>
0: these are scientific I mean, terms, people. <laughs> stupidville versus Sillytown. I uh, okay. I, I've got I've got a question for you. Um, I've I feel like I've been repeating this uh, ad nauseum on like all the interviews that I've done recently. But did you um, did you happen to catch the interview John Collison did with Stan Druckenmiller?
1: I've seen snippets I, I have not sat down and watched the whole
0: it's, thing. It's it's worth a listen. It's it's pretty good. He had he yep. had one he had one anecdote that you will have lived through so you'd probably resonate with but he's describing the his his time period trading around right before the the burst of the dot com bubble and you know he like oh, yeah. famously got kind of whipped around during that year, right? You know, he yes. he went in you know, he made a little bit of money, then he went in big, lost the money, et cetera. So, he, you know, he was kind of describing this um, this period of time that he took off after losing an enormous amount, basically trading during, during the dot-com era. And uh, he, he comes back, and he looks at the market, and there are three conditions that are in place. Well, I guess four. So, the NASDAQ is still elevated, but at the same time that the NASDAQ was elevated, you had rising energy prices, you had a strong and rising dollar, and you had rising yields. And um, you know he—I forget who he said he—he he, he spoke to, but he spoke to one of his friends and said, "Well, why is why are stocks still up when when these three conditions are in place?" This guy ran a regression. Um, you know, when when those three things are true, uh, you know, historically, earnings would then crater thirty-five percent in the coming year. Yep. Um, and he went short yep. and made a boatload of money and ended the year up, uh, despite having lost like over a billion dollars before. Point being, yeah. those three conditions describe pretty accurately. <laughs> What's going on today? Right, we.
1: What's going on right, right now. now? Look, this is 2001 redo, mm-hmm. and you know I've talked about this and talked about it ad, ad nauseum. You know, people forget 2000 was not the bad year, mm. right? 2000 was the warm up. 2000 is when people went, oh, wait a minute, this is stupid, and we started to go down. But then we had this relief rally where the Fed said we're going to save everyone. And we're going to print more money because the Fed had printed half a trillion, half, one half of a trillion, not 10 trillion, but one half of a trillion leading up to to Y2K because they were afraid the world was going to end. And when the world didn't end, people looked at stock prices and went, oh, geez, these are pretty high. And so March 24th, that was the top. But then the Fed came back in that first quarter of of 2001 and said, no, 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 we're we're going to provide liquidity and we're going to save us. And so we only ended up down 6% for 2000 but 2001 when stan was getting whipsawed was you had this this rally and we went all the way back almost to equal from i think it, at one point down 14 15 percent so it was a, it was a vicious rally from kind of the middle of of uh, november through december into january february and then the stuff happened all the stuff that stan describes led to uh, earnings, revisions. So famously, and this is also happening right now. So you, so you have these companies like Cisco that couldn't sell their inventory. So they wrote it off. And literally, then they started selling it again later at zero cost, which is just so insane. But they they played, They wrote it off and they said, oh, we have to restate all of our earnings from the last five years because we kind of exaggerated. And it led to the discovery of fraud. And there was a lot of fraud. There was Enron and WorldCom and, and all this stuff. And look, 2001 was a crappy year, it was down 14, but 2002 was the really crappy year, right? That was down 22. And so you still had plenty of time. Um, and if you look at a bubble chart, you know, at a, a traditional bubble chart, and you can maybe attach it to the show notes, you know, it goes and has that, that false bear trap where it kind of falls and then it kind of goes parabolic. To the top, and then it rolls over, and then you have the last cathartic kind of turn up, and it's called a return to normal. As everybody says, no, 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 it really is a new paradigm. That term "new paradigm," which anytime someone says that, just run away. And then you have the drop, and the drop accelerates through capitulation and fear, and then you get to loathing on the other side. And if you remember first quarter two thousand three, and you know, right before we invaded Iraq for the second time. Um, that was when uh people were like i'm done with stocks i'm done i just i never want to see a stock again <laughs> institutions yeah. were like we're not going to invest and that was clearly a good time to to buy them that and and war oh but oh, war We yeah, have war too i mean everything's the same
0: everything's yeah the same. um yeah it it does it does seem like it's starting to to rhyme there's a there's a great interview um Gonna, that going to complemented what you just said with greg jensen uh bridgewater that he just gave with grant williams that i would recommend folks listen to maybe we can link it in the show notes but um definitely worth it uh he, he was pretty prescient i listened to an interview he did about a year ago and, and a lot of what he said his kind of uh Come to pass, I would say. Um, and you know, I—I I mean, it's one thing that's interesting to, to check out during these conditions in general is, um, you know, I, that's probably a good gauge, right, of of just sentiment in general and and wh- whether people are going to be happy or not is just um, real average hourly earnings, right? So what we've got here is real average hourly earnings year over year, and you can see that they're shrinking. Now, I think if you would actually parse this out into different—oh,
1: um, Michael, it, they're more than shrinking they're collapsing. Mm-hmm. This is of historic proportions. Yeah. And and it goes to the policy error, okay, on the, you know, left-hand side of or the the right the, the right-hand side but not at the far end of this chart where, you know, we revert around that mean, you know, up and down basically flat cuz real wages have been flat since the 70s. The 70s yeah. Right. I mean it's crazy and it's because right the fed has been stealing the wealth of the masses and pushing it up to the elite you know for for decades and real wages have been stagnant the top 10% are up like 100 and something percent i mean it's it's crazy and so they do it through this insidious thing called called mm-hmm. inflation and if you go back to the yeah. chart for one sec if you if you look at that big spike up okay this is where people were saying oh us savings rate is is at all time records i'm like what are you talking about you sent people a check for 1200 dollars that's not savings mm. that's not real that is a policy error of epic proportions it's led to all the things we're seeing with the currencies it's led to you know and i was i was up i was at a conference the other day why I kind of look a little tired is I took the red eye oh home again, God. which I always say I'm not going to do. And I did again, uh, but I was out in Seattle and, uh, I did this conference and we were talking about, um, Tim's so tired. I forgot my train of thought. Um, we're talking about what happened with, uh, the, 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 the Bitcoin, you know, I was making the case that Bitcoin is, is mm. a good asset. And these people, we are, we are so mm. early, Michael, these people, like one woman came up to me and said, I disagree with everything you said. This is a Ponzi. I'm like, well, look, if you don't know the difference between a Ponzi and a pyramid scheme, then we can't even have a conversation because by definition, it is not yeah. a Ponzi, not a Ponzi. You, you can call it a pyramid if you want, just like any other currency in the world, which is built on faith and belief and, and foundation, but you can't call it a Ponzi. But this audience wanted nothing to do. With Bitcoin. Now, remember, this is Pacific Northwest. This is Amazon and Microsoft. And we're rich because we're smart. And they want to have nothing to do with, with anything. But what I said is, they said, well, the, you know, the uh, there's not a, a hedge against inflation because inflation was 9 percent and Bitcoin didn't go up. I'm like, oh, wait a second. In the last two years, the Fed, okay, this big spike on the chart, the Fed printed 50 percent of all the dollars in the history of the Republic, 256 years. Oh, interestingly. Okay. If you print 50% of the dollars, that means you basically devalue by hundred percent ish, right? Because You've doubled the money supply. Bitcoin's up precisely 100% in that two year period. It just happens faster Because it's not a lagging indicator like inflation. Inflation is a lagging indicator. It's what happened a year ago or six months ago. It's not real time. It didn't happen immediately when they printed the money. The money printing is finally making its way through the economy as as it cycles through. So now you're seeing this massive collapse in real wages. And this is the theft. This is the, again, Sinister Saturday. This is the impoverishing of the masses. Yeah. This is intentional. This is absolutely intentional to make people poor. Then you give them UBI or soft UBI. We forgive your loans. We send you a gas card. We give you a little checky, you know, for, for cost of living and we make you dependent on us. And now freaking Gavin Newsom is going to run for president. Oh my mm. God. Are you kidding? Mm. He thinks if he can hand people gas cards, he's going to get a no, no, run away, run away from. I
0: I want to talk a little bit just about this inflation handle, uh, because we got over 9%, right, which is, again, I mean, you know, this has been continuing to surprise to the upside, right? And you could see there's this chart going around on Twitter of like, you know, everyone predict. Okay, there was actually something pretty funny. Like all the investment banks, right? City, Goldman, Barclays, whatever, they're all predicting, they've all got their prediction for inflation. I think Goldman, uh, they, they were predicting slightly over the expectation of 8.8% headline CPI, right? So there is 8.8, and they predicted 8.88 or something like that. Came in over 9%. Uh, you know what was the lowest one was Visa. Visa was calling for 8.6% inflation. I thought that was a little funny. Maybe maybe no one else does think it's as funny as I do. Um, I wonder if that actually means that inflation is going to turn over, because I would guess that Visa has access to the most real-time data. You know what I mean? Way Way better better data. I think Uh, it might be telling. I, I haven't seen anyone else talk about this, so I'm a little hesitant to voice it, because I just haven't. I don't Really know here what data they were using versus the investment banks, but I would guess that they have access to the most real-time data in terms of payments. Like, wouldn't they be kind of ahead of the trend in terms of predicting this stuff? But anyway, for for, for listeners yep. who are uh, just just listening and not following along visually, you can see you know what is drive. We're looking at um, headline CPI and it's broken out by categories. So we're looking at energy, food, goods, and services. Two interesting things here. So, goods inflation um, is actually collapsing. Right? That was that was what was making up the yep. the lion's share, Used right? Cars. Um, so that's starting yeah. to finally moderate, like folks were predicting. Energy is, you know, the I would say the the uh, the lion's share of the increase here, um, and services is steadily yep. ticking up. Services is steadily ticking up as well, um, and food yep. it, food is still the lowest, and the smallest uh, overall category, but the most worrisome, in my opinion. Um, so.
1: Well, services is, is, is that residual effect of my input costs go up. I'm a restaurant. My, my food prices go up. My machine prices go up. You know, my commuting costs back and forth to work go up. And, and I'll give you the example. So my, my barber, um, you may like him or not like him, but I, I like him. Um, and uh, he says, you know how I, I decide when to raise my prices? is when i don't have any money left in my checking account at the end of the month. So like that that's how i determine my price and that's that's how you can judge inflation and uh and he tends to to increase in bumps. Like he'll go you know when i first moved here 24 years ago it was 10 bucks and then he raised it to 12 then it was 15 and then the last bump was from 15 to 20. That's a 33% increase. Now he 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 should have done it over time uh faster but but he he you know he's just a good good old guy and he's you know happy to do it that way but what this chart is telling me uh look the energy piece it's already rolled over you know we're down into sub $100 oil oil mark my words will be approaching $60 by the election gas prices will be collapsing by the election it's the last chance the dems have to to, to get any you know, positions or else they're going to lose everything. I mean, they have messed up so badly, but, but they will cut a deal with Saudi. Saudi will pump. um, They won't pump 1.2 million barrels a day. Like someone reported the other day, that's just nonsense, but they will pump and they'll announce it and, and prices will, will head back down and, and that will collapse the CPI. And then services might, you you can see services on the left-hand side of this chart were really stable around yeah, that 2% level. And then when energy prices were negative, they went down. Well, why? We were <laughs> locked in our house, right? We weren't using gasoline. We weren't, you know, we weren't going to restaurants. So yes, the services element went down. Well, now everybody is going out to eat and everybody went to the UK with us, except London. London was not very busy. Edinburgh was busy. Dublin, super busy. Dublin, super busy. But, and the airplanes were packed. Uh, and Heathrow's now having to limit the number of passengers in because you know, the airport's just not big enough. But I do think oil prices are coming down. This is going to roll over. This will be yesterday's story. And the other part that's going to happen is the continued collapse of equities is going to weigh on people's wealth, their feeling of wealth. And home prices are going to collapse, too, because we raised mortgage rates. So all those things are going to lead to deflationary pressures. Demographically, we got bad deflationary pressures. Look, I, I I'll, I'll say over the next twelve months. I'll bet you long bonds kick the crud out of stocks.
0: Really? Interesting. Oh, yeah. That's a pretty uh, that's a pretty contra- uh, elaborate on that a little.
1: It's a bull <laughs> call cotton. Anybody's <laughs> got to do it. Like, I'm all over bull calls. I'm calling the bottom in Bitcoin. I'm calling you know bonds beating stocks. Uh, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, look, I'm maybe it's cause I took a vacation and I, I got a little rest while well, I didn't get a lot of rest because I was working on stuff, but, um, I, I don't know, maybe I, don't know, I, I just feel really energized. I, I, I do feel All right. contagious. I love today. it. I know, um, I
0: like. I've got a, okay, here's something that I can't really square, right? This is, this is the, the thing that's tougher to predict. And I get that it's a little messier because it's a mid to longish term prediction, but you know, those those drivers of deflation, right, that uh, we talk about, uh, debt demographics. Yeah. What's the third one again? Debt. Dem- well, debt de- demographics
1: uh, lead to deflation. So excess debt, bad lead to demographics to lead to
0: deflation. I sort of for the first time see like just long-term inflationary pressures in the form of, you know, it in the form of, I, I think another big thing that was driving deflation over the course of the last 30 years or whatever is we were able to borrow from low-cost labor pools uh, indiscriminately. And I yeah. saw this when, when I was a consultant working in yeah. supply chain and supply chain, you've got your trifecta of like quality, speed, cost. And it was just, everything was so optimized for cost. Um, and now, and now you're facing political pressures, right? Where, uh, you know, especially if you have some sort yeah. of, if you're manufacturing some sort of good, that's, you know, could be argued has, has a, a, an element of national security to it. You just won't, you're just not politically as, as free. Right, it's it's a whole other risk factor, right, to manufacturing over in um, yep. either Vietnam or China.
1: Nationalism is definitely inflationary. You're 100 percent right, and, and look, it's you know, I mean, I, I just I actually feel really bad for the guy. I mean, he's he's in a place that he can't succeed, who, and he just looks like a buffoon half the time. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You know who I'm talking about because I. You know, the other day he says, China's not the manufacturing powerhouse of the world. America is. Like, That's you some, kidding? you know
0: what, whoever is, whoever is running mean, his social media should be fired, honestly. I mean, it's the amount of tweets I've seen honestly, have just been like, what are you talking about? It's just, I feel for the guy too. I, and I do.
1: It's just wrong in that it's like we manufacture yeah. nothing. We manufacture oil, which is not really manufacturing. We pull it out of the ground and we, we send it off. And we manufacture cars. We are. We do manufacture cars, but that's it. You know, we don't manufacture tchotchkes. I mean, look at everything in your office. Turn it over. It says made in China. And and that's not good or bad. But to your point on, on low-cost labor pools, it's 100% true. And if you look at the uh, the number of countries that are now transacting in rubles and renminbi and their local currency is moving away from the dollar, all of this is all toward the renminbi becoming... Mm. the world reserve currency. Long before Bitcoin does, and I think it eventually will, it will be the Rem and B. And everybody's like, the dollar's so strong, the dollar's so strong. Like, no, it's not. It's strong against the other really bad ones, like the yen and the euro, but against the renminbi, B, the renminbi B is still hanging mm. in there strong. So I I do think supply chain will mend. Uh, I do think that other low-cost labor pools like Indonesia and Vietnam, Burma, etc., cetera, will emerge. And, and some of that will get ameliorated. But I think you're right that this nationalism trend in this, you know, make it in America and let's, let's go to national security, um, all of that is, is inflationary. But I think it's trumped, you, know, you can't even use that word anymore. It's just it makes me mad right uh it's overruled it's overruled by the fact that old people okay they don't consume as much they don't spend as much they save and they mm. buy bonds right and rob arnott writes very eloquently about this the demand for bonds in savings over the next 15 16 years as my cohort of boomers right i'm the second to last year my wife's the last year But as the earlier boomers start to really retire, they will be selling equities, converting to bonds, and that is deflationary. They're downsizing their houses. We just did it with my parents. All of that is deflationary. And then the technology is accelerating. You know, we're going to strip trillions of dollars out of the middle of financial services and all the things that blockchain technology does. That's deflationary. So... I agree with you, while kind of on the other side, making a case that that maybe there'll be forces that overwhelm the very. Here's the here's
0: you make. a view that I'm starting to develop, and I'd love to get your opinion on it. I think at some point we need government to stop being dysfunctional if we want to solve the problems that. And but let me let me let me qualify that just by saying like Amen. okay, so if you want to go back and look at previous inflationary periods the the pe- the ones that people love to talk about in the US are the 1970s and the 1940s right in the 1970s there was a very clear decision between price stability and recession right to the point where volcker depending on how you look at things as a savior or like whatever he hiked he uh, caused two big recessions but he eventually broke the back of inflation when he when he took fed funds to 20% yep. there there actually is, and and that has i think correctly uh caused people to kind of repeat this mantra and this line of when made to choose between price stability and inflation, the Fed would, will, and in my opinion, should pick price stability. That being said, there's another period, the 1940s, where uh, there was a, a larger enemy than either the recession or inflation, and that was the war, right? And in that case, national yeah. security superseded yeah. everything, including price stability, They inflation run hot, and they kept Fed funds rate down below zero. The, the other thing that happened, though, was actually productive investment On the government side of things, admittedly that was spurred by a war, but they 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 put money into things like aluminum factories, right? Steel. uh, They invested in technology, right? And all of those things actually helped pave the way for the next, um, you know, sixty or so years of of growth. The the thing that's going on right now that's concerning, right, is that none of that productive investment is going on. And I actually think one of one of the reasons, like, look, if you Mm. look at look at the chart of 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 stocks, uh, right, like what. When, uh, when when COVID happened, all this money just went into speculation of like the worst equities. It wasted everyone's time yep. for two years. And then we're right back to where we were, but everyone's yep. just more pissed off than they were eventually. And, and I think part of the reason is, is there's no funding source. There's no funding that's set up to invest in these like higher CapEx intensive in- industries, right? VC is largely suited to software. And that's great. We've produced a lot of great software companies. Yep. VC is, I think, the correct funding mechanism for a funding source for... Crypto going forward, but like eventually we 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 need to you know a lot of these um, you know really important industries that are higher capex they should get invested in too, and eventually government needs to start being a part of the the solution here, right? Uh, I just don't see a good path towards it.
1: Oh, amen. Look, and and look how close we are to a really critical point with chips, right? The entire fate of the known world, right? Not to be too dramatic, but but, but to be that dramatic, relies on uh, mm. Taiwan Semiconductor, right? Taiwan Semiconductor is the most yeah. important company in the world. And should China, like I, I think I've told the story, we have a, a conference table in our China room, right? We have Brazil, Russia, India, China conference rooms, and we have maps and in the China map, Taiwan is part of China. You now, the tables were made in China. Uh, so that's their view, right? And so, if they were to just say, you know what, that's ours, that will cause, I mean, it might actually cause World War III, but it will cause a disruption of epic proportions that the world is not mm-hmm. ready to deal with. And to your point, we could solve some of that by partnering with. Intel, and AMD, or maybe a new startup with gallium arsenide technology from down the road at NC State. Look, for years I've said, you want to solve most of our problems? Stop treating Social Security like a pay-as-you-go system and do it like the uh, Singaporeans do. Set up a fund, a giant fund that only backs venture capital growth equity in technology and it will fund social security because it will generate huge returns and do the social good that you're talking about. And it's so easy, except it'll never get done because we got 530, what is it, 538 people that all want it to benefit their district. And so you need to fund my project. No, 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 you don't get to do any, you just put the money in a pot you hire a team, and the team will manage the money. You don't get to tell where it goes. So we'll have no more Solyndra, no more stupid stuff. Well, what actually, was cylindra? Solyndra was uh, a pork barrel solar project where you had these tubes that supposedly the light shone in, and it, it made like the super hot thing to power. And it was under the Obama administration, and it was mm. a total loss, I mean, a total wipeout, because it wasn't good technology. and. But it was pork, and it got. I think it got. I don't remember the number. But I, I just
0: I, so, so I was so actually. Gonna, I well, you you know much more about this than me. But if I could push back a little there, because I was under the impression that was like part of a larger investment. Uh, you know that the whole Obama administration made, and if you looked at like the return on that government investment pool, it was actually pretty good. Cylindro was like a huge big wipeout, right? But uh, overall, it's like
1: no, no. I, I I think it probably was really good, Michael. But my point was. The decision to put Solyndra in there was not economic. The idea to make yeah. those investments is great. And to the point, even mm-hmm. with a bad selection system, they got some good companies and a, and a good return on investment and it was exactly the right thing to do. What I'm saying is if you did it the way you know, the Singaporean government does it with Tomasic and the government of Singapore, they have incredible teams, like teams yeah, of, of leagues of people who have a background in doing technology investing, and they invest, and they don't just invest in in the greatest early stage technology, they invest in, they made a great investment in a tea tree plantation in Australia, right? Tea tree is this super hard wood, it's like harder than teak, and has medicinal properties, and it's very highly prized all over Asia, and and it grows really fast on this one side of, of Australia. And they made a huge investment in that and made a boatload of money again. And the government gets the money instead of – and the people because their, their yeah. social security system is fully funded, overfunded.
0: Yeah, it's definitely an interesting system. Um, I, I I wonder uh... – well, well, you tell me again I'm, I'm venturing into stuff I don't fully understand but my understanding right of, of different the reason why uh, different countries have sovereign wealth funds right is that it's like a company right if they're almost like over earning and they have nowhere to productively yeah. reinvest the capital internally they need to they want to earn a return on that capital so they bring it overseas largely to the United States because when I first learning about sovereign wealth funds i was like these actually seem like pretty good ideas like why don't we have one of these in the united states and i was like ah the reason this whole system exists is because like especially like saudi arabia right like they're over earning on their oil but they've got nowhere to domestically reinvest it so they got to repay. they got to they got to put that overseas and that's why they buy u.s treasuries
1: but here's the thing we do but we do have lots of assets right everyone talks about you know the us is bankrupt We have all this debt like no 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 remember we have assets like we have land, like lots and lots and lots of amazing land. And we have mineral rights and resources. And this whole thing about, oh, we're not going to let any more drilling in Alaska. How about this? How about we sell off leases to drill to global companies and take that money and put it in a fund to then make the mess? Or how about we sell pieces of land in the flyover states? And I don't mean that derogatorily. I mean, literally, when you fly over the United States, there's a lot of land and There's just very few people living on it. And let's load up planes, literally let's send planes to the best universities in China, in Singapore, in, you know, wherever you want and bring back PhDs. And let's say, here, Mm. here's some land, build something, like build cities and build communities and build businesses and and we'll own a piece of it. And people are like, no, we want to keep all the people out of the country. The country was built. By people who didn't live here. We came here right. and we used this great resource, this this land, this protection, and all these things. There was a great, a great chart, and I can't remember where I saw it, it was on Twitter, but that showed children of immigrants are I think it's a hundred percent, which means twice, as likely to be successful as children of non immigrants. And that's a little skewed and it probably has a lot of privilege bias, but not really, because it's the opposite. It's, you're talking about people who came over and their parents you know started a business you know convenience store or a hotel chain i mean entire downtown raleigh right you know 20 miles from where i live mm-hmm. all the hotels are owned by indian families and that is not a racist statement it's just it is a fact and how did they mm-hmm. do it they came over they bought a single hotel they lived in the hotel the guy that worked for us tells the story of he lived in the hotel and he had to do some stuff he didn't really like to do. And then they bought another hotel with the cash flow. And they bought another hotel. And they bought another hotel. And that that's really cool. And now he goes off to college and he goes to do great things and he's working for this big Hong Kong-based investment firm. And I mean, those are great stories.
0: That's the American dream. Um Mark, unfortunately, I know we've got to wrap a little bit early this week. I love ending on a, a nice story like that. Um, as always, favorite, it's not quite an hour this week, but 30 minutes yeah, of this week. All good. Um all good. And we will see you same time next week. All right.
1: Thanks, my friend. Cheers.